Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insight. I'm Rachel Page, and I'm joined by Pavan Serpanini. Pavan and I both practice in SNC's sports and entertainment group and in its commercial real estate group. Today, we're going to be discussing a topic at the intersection of those two practice areas investments by professional sports teams in sports anchored real estate development projects. In recent years, a growing number of teams in each of the major professional sports leagues have taken a leading role in mixed use real estate development projects that are anchored by their home arenas, stadiums, and ballparks. At least a dozen professional sports teams have proposed, commenced, or completed such projects in the last five years. Today, Pavan and I are going to cover three major questions. Why are teams getting involved with these real estate projects? What are the key considerations for a team when it does decide to get involved with one of these projects? And what does the future look like for these projects? Pavan, let's start with motivations. Why are teams getting involved with these projects now? Look, I think every project is ultimately very different from the others, but they're probably all going to share uh, at least three fundamental similarities. First and foremost, these are great investments for teams. Uh, on, on one hand, they provide relatively stable cash flows for over a long period of time, and that, that's going to help teams offset some of the seasonality of their, their income from game operations. I think there are also some obvious synergies between having a team's stadium and real estate development located next to each other. You often hear the words live, work, play. Tenants, their workers, residents, patrons of retail establishments and restaurants all create a built-in base for additional fans to come to the stadium and experience the game. But also the excitement around a team, its brand and its standing in the community can help bring that base to the project in the neighborhood itself. These projects also allow teams to control the fan experience. They're able to ensure that their new neighbors complement the facility and the team's entertainment, parking, public space, and aesthetic preferences all fit into the overall plan and program of the team. Lastly, but just as important, these arena districts are making a significant impact in each of the communities in which they've been located. For example, if you look at Detroit, all of the major sports teams in that city are located in the downtown area and their stadiums, arenas, and mixed use projects have had an enormously revitalizing effect on the downtown Detroit neighborhood. So in summary, I think those three factors, which ultimately boil down to the relationship between the team and its neighbors, often lead teams to pursue these projects. So let's switch gears and talk about the key considerations that arise when a team decides to pursue these projects. Rich, I know that you feel strongly that the selection of a development partner is often the single most important decision a team can make when they pursue these projects. Why is that? Master planning and ultimately developing a new large-scale neighborhood requires, among many other things, site assemblage, expertise, entitlement procurement, environmental diligence and remediation, zoning compliance, development impact mitigation, design, public financing and incentives, and private debt and equity capital. All of these items require interaction, negotiation, and coordination with numerous constituencies and can be quite complicated. Although some team owners have pursued these projects on their own, relying on the help of trusted advisors and experts, many have chosen to partner with a developer that has expertise in leading these large-scale projects to help take the lead on the core real estate activities involved with the project. Selecting the right development partner is crucial for at least three reasons. First, development joint ventures often last for a decade or longer, and their success depends heavily on the strength of the team developer relationship. 
Second, the developer will play a leading role in many important real estate decisions, and it's important that the team believe that the developer is capable of making the right decisions. Finally, with the team's brand and key community relationships on the line, it is crucial that teams select a reputable developer who they can trust and who shares the team's vision for the project. Pavan, though getting a deal done with a development partner stands out, what else do teams need to be thinking about when pursuing these projects? That's a complex question, Rich. These are complicated development projects that bring in a lot of different elements of our practice. The article linked in the podcast notes that you and I wrote highlights nine key areas that teams will want to consider. But to avoid completely spoiling the plot, I'll, I'll focus on just three of those areas. Related to the point you just discussed, if the team has a development partner or any other equity partner in the project, it's going to have to give some thought as to how decisions will be made. For example, will all decisions require joint approval? Or instead, will each partner get to take a leading role in its core competency, maybe subject to some veto rights in favor of the other? These might be on-site development for the developer and for the team parking, marketing, promotion, and community relations. If deadlocks arise between the team and the developer, how are they going to be resolved? Dispute resolution provisions could include mediation, arbitration, buyout rights, or a variety of other bespoke mechanisms. Second, teams are subject to a number of league rules that need to be considered when pursuing these real estate projects and structuring the investment itself. While leagues have generally been very encouraging of these developments, that's not going to excuse teams from complying with applicable league rules. These might include limits on the project itself. For instance, players and agents may be barred from investing in the project. And the project may be prohibited from including casino or other on-site gambling operations. Other league rules can affect the way the investment itself should be structured. The two most important rules that need to be considered are any applicable debt limits and any revenue sharing programs. Ownership structures for the team and the project need to be carefully considered in light of these rules to avoid unexpected results. So I'll finish by covering some considerations that arise when the project is completed and one of the team or the developer wants to exit the investment. These two parties may have different investment horizons. Developers often want to sell the project once development and lease-up is complete so that they can monetize the value creation from the development phase and redeploy capital in new projects. In contrast, teams may want to hold on to the investment to reap the stable stream of cash flows, continue to influence the fan experience, and retain their placemaking role in the community for many years. But the opposite could also be true. If the owner sells the team, may also want to be able to sell its interest in the development project as well, or the team's ownership group may desire distribution of funds for other reasons. Either of these events could cause a misalignment between the team on one hand and the developer on the other in terms of the ultimate exit strategy. It's important upfront for the team to carefully consider when each investor should have the right to force an asset sale or transfer its equity in the project, and what rights, if any, the others have in those proposed transactions. Let's switch gears one last time and take a look forward, Rich. What do you think the future has in store for team-led mixed-use development projects? We are recording this podcast in the midst of a pandemic. And so let me caveat all of this by saying that it is very difficult to make any predictions about the future right now. However, I think there is good reason to believe that these projects will continue to be attractive opportunities for teams. Pavan and I have a number of clients who are pushing ahead right now on these development projects that are at various different stages in the project cycle. 
In addition, recently completed projects in this space have proven to be very successful real estate investments. And the teams involved in those projects reported pre-pandemic upticks in the number of fans who arrived in the neighborhood hours before game time and stayed for hours after game's end. Finally, for teams that are considering new sports anchor development projects, there's often years of research, master planning, and community relations to undertake before significant investment is made in land assemblage and development. As a result, this may be as good a time as any to start on these projects. Let's wrap up this episode on that note of cautious optimism. Thank you for listening to SNC Critical Insights. You can find additional information on sports teams and sports anchored real estate development in our recent article linked in the show notes. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.sulcrom.com. Thank you.